In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. When I recorded my podcast last Friday, I speculated that the price of gold might gap up the following Monday above $1,350 an ounce. But that didn't happen because over the weekend, Donald Trump uh, managed to tweet out a face saving way in which to not impose the tariffs on Mexican products that may have gone into effect on Monday and the markets breathed a sigh of relief. And so instead of gapping up, the price of gold went the opposite way and gapped down. Well, this morning we got the gap. It was on the last day of the week, but not the first day of the week. Gold gapped higher on the day. It was actually trading as high as 1356 or 1357 earlier this morning. That was a 52-week high in the price of gold. In fact, it was a 14-month high. We were actually up even before we got any economic data. I think the high of the day might have been before uh, the U.S. stock market opened when we were up about 15 bucks or so. But what happened was at 8.30, prior to the opening of the U.S. market, we got some economic data that was a bit stronger than expected. And that stronger than expected data rained on the gold rally parade, sending the price of gold down on the day. In fact, it only closed down about a buck or so, uh, but we did not uh, hold above 1350. Now, the key level is not really 1350. It's a little bit higher up because the price of gold has been above 1350 twice before, I think, in the last six years, not counting today. But it wasn't able to hold. That's the key. We need to see the price of gold get higher than that. Maybe a close above 1375. There's a lot of noise. That's where all the resistance has been coming in between 1350 and 1375. Uh, but nonetheless, I think, as I said in the last podcast, the more times we knock on this resistance door, uh, the more likely it is that the door is going to open. And in fact, the buyers continue to come in to the price of gold. I was listening to an, an interview with Paul Tudor Jones uh, on, um, I forget where I, 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 he was interviewed, but I was watching a clip of it and he was asked what his favorite trade was for the next 12 to 24 months. And his answer was gold. And, you know, a lot of smart people are now coming out and saying that, yeah, gold's going higher. I mean, gold's got everything going for it. 
and they want to be involved. And of course, I think if the price of gold does what I think it's going to do and what some other smart people think it's going to do, well, then the price of gold stocks are going to do even better. Now, I think the reason that the better than expected economic data, which saw the Atlanta Fed and the New York Fed revising up their forecasts for uh, GDP uh, for the second quarter and even the third quarter, I think, from the New York Fed, and the probability of a July rate cut uh, went down ever so slightly as a result of this data. And that's what caused the dollar to rise. In fact, the dollar index was up about a half a percent. It was one of the strongest days it's had. And I think we had some short covering. I think that people had been selling the dollar. And I think that's the smart trade. I think the dollar is going down. And I think a lot of the people shorting the dollar probably expected the economic data to be weaker, which has generally been this trend. I mean, we've been getting weaker than expected data, so it probably wasn't a bad bet that today's data would also be weak. When it wasn't weak, on a Friday, you know, at the end of, you know, going into a weekend, I think the shorts covered, and that's why the dollar rose. And in that environment, it was very hard for gold to maintain its gains, to stay above that 1350 resistance level. And I think it made it easier for people to sell gold and push the price down. But the fact that gold was barely down today, despite the fact that we had a very strong U.S. dollar, shows incredible strength underlying the market. And even though gold didn't break out, it didn't break down. And we continue to make higher lows and higher highs as we continue to march forward to this resistance level. Ultimately, this resistance level will prove futile and we are going to go through it. But if you actually look at the, uh, at the numbers, the economic data, the only number that came out today that was better than expected was retail sales. The other numbers were pretty much in line. And the actual number for May wasn't really better than expected. I mean, it was about consensus. They were looking for a gain of 0.7, and we actually got a gain of 0.5, so slightly below that. But the internals, uh, if you X out autos, they were looking for up 0.4, and we got up 0.5. Uh, take out gas, and they were looking for 0.4, and we got 0.5, so those are slightly better. And the control group number, which was also, again, supposed to be up 0.4, was up 0.5. So, you know, slightly better on the internals, slightly worse on the headline, really no big deal. So the supposed good news was all about the revisions to the April number. April retail sales initially reported as down 0.2, was revised to up 0.3. Uh, less autos, which was originally reported as up 0.1, is now up 0.5. And less autos and gas, which was minus 0.2, became a plus 0.3. The control group went from zero to up 0.4. So those were significant upward revisions to data that is pretty old. You're going back to April. And these aren't strong numbers. They're just not as weak as the numbers that were originally reported. But I think given where the market was, that was enough to spark a short covering rally in the dollar and cause some profit taking uh, in this gold rally as we once again got above uh, above resistance. But, you know, given the propensity for the government to revise the numbers, it's quite possible that the numbers that we got today for May could easily be revised. I mean, maybe they're going to be revised a lot lower. Uh, so maybe there really was no good economic news that came out today. But the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter to the traders. Uh, the traders are going to adjust their positions based on whatever numbers end up getting reported regardless of what may happen in the future when it comes to the revisions. Also, the stock market, you know, it held up at one point. The market, the Dow was down about 100 points, and that was also a positive for the gold market. But as the U.S. market recovered, that also worked against the gold rally. The Dow did end up closing down, but just 17 points, not very much. A lot a weaker NASDAQ, which was down a half a percent, 40 points, uh, mainly led lower by the chip stocks. You know, you had Broadcom that was down 6%, which led the chips down. Uh, Broadcom uh, being affected negatively by the tariffs. 
But if you look at what happened in a Russell 2000, the action there was really weak because at the end of the day, the Russell 2000 actually sold off and made new lows. So the low tick of the day was at the closing bell. Russell 2000 down 13.3 points, uh, just 0.87%. Uh, transports down 42 points, 0.41%. So also a pretty weak day. We did have some IPOs uh, today. One in particular that uh, caught my attention was a stock called Chewy. And, you know, I was thinking it was Mark Twain who once said that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. But in this case, uh, this is rhyming uh, closer than you might normally find because the stock that came out today, um, Chewy, is an online retailer of pet products. I mean, all that's missing is the sock puppet. And this is a pets.com, you know, redo 20 years later, right? That was probably the poster child for uh, the IPO bubble of the 1992,000, where you had all the dot-coms that crashed and burned. Pets.com and its famous sock puppet really is one of the companies that most people think of or associate with that bubble. So you would think that given that, that they wouldn't be able to do the same thing again, that investors wouldn't fall for the same trick twice. Yet here they are buying up shares of Chewy, right? The stock came public, I think 22 was the IPO price, and that would have given the company a market cap of almost $9 billion. And I forget the numbers. I think they lost $60 million their recent uh, year or something. So losing tens of millions of dollars. And the company had a $9 billion valuation. The stock at one point, the high of the day was $41.34. It almost doubled intraday from the IPO price. Closed up just under 13 bucks, which is a 59% gain from the IPO price. But we did close close to the low of the day. So anybody who bought the stock during the day is down or you know uh, on the close, but still pretty good gain if you got the stock and flipped it. But at the peak, you're talking about a $15 billion market cap for a money-losing online retailer of pet products. I mean, come on. And also, you know, making it worse, almost all the money that was raised went to uh, the parent company, PetSmart, which owned this company and basically spun it off in this IPO. And I think maybe 10% of the money, the billion dollars or whatever they raised, actually went as working capital to the company. The rest of the cash went into the pockets of PetSmart. So PetSmart is being smart they are cashing out. It's the people who are buying this IPO who are helping them uh, you know, cash out of this investment. PetSmart bought the entire company three years ago, and the IPO values the company at, I think, three times what PetSmart paid. So the public is getting in for a price triple the price that PetSmart paid three years ago, and they still haven't managed to make a profit and there's no indication that they ever will. I mean, come on. I mean, first of all, it's not like Amazon doesn't sell uh, this kind of stuff. And you know, how difficult is it for somebody, a company, any to sell pet products on the internet? And, and, and personally, too, I think that during a recession, one of the you know, first e expenditures to go would be buying you know, toys and stuff for your pet. You know, I think when times are good and people have a lot of extra money, okay, you know, maybe I could buy some fancy, you know, pet biscuits, uh, snacks, or uh, toys for, for your dog or your cat. But I think when the budget is tight and you have to cut back, I mean, that's one of the first places you're going to economize, right? I mean, these are really discretionary purchases. Yes, you're going to feed your pet, but I don't think the big margins are coming in on uh, on the pet food. And I'm not really sure what they charge for shipping. You know, I mentioned on the show before, I buy all sorts of pet food from Amazon in Puerto Rico. They send me huge bags of dog food that weigh like 40 pounds and they give me no shipping. I mean, they can't possibly be making money on this pet food. But how is um, Chewy going to compete with Amazon? I, I don't know. This, this whole thing seems crazy to me that people would be so dumb as to fall for almost the identical uh, 
a brand, right? I mean, it was the same concept. I mean, I don't know how different this is than than, than uh, Pets.com. I mean, I mean, the internet is 20 years uh, more mature, so they probably have some more sophisticated technology, and so maybe they could do some stuff uh, that uh, Pets.com wasn't doing. Uh, but basically, it's the same thing: trying to get people to buy pet food and other pet products uh, online from your site. Yeah, maybe it'll work. The company's not worth $15 billion, $9 billion, anywhere near that. But again, this is what you expect in a mania, in a bubble. And that's exactly what we have. In fact, we had another uh, big IPO that came out yesterday. This is another uh, online company, uh, Fiverr International. And what Fiverr does is it's basically a home for people in the gig economy, right? If you're a freelancer, you're doing some work, online marketing, whatever it is, you can you know, join this site and people can find you and hire you and pay you uh, through this site. I mean, Fiverr, I don't know what they have that may be proprietary. It's an interesting idea. Who knows what the company is worth? I'm sure nowhere near uh, what people paid for. But this was a big IPO. I think it came out at like 21 bucks. I forget the exact price, but this morning it was as high as 44. So again, almost double the IPO price uh, on the second day of trading. But the stock actually closed down $8.40 today, 21% decline. Uh, so after hitting a high of 44 and a quarter this morning, it closed down at 31.49, which was the low of the day, the very low of the day. So we made a new all-time record high and then basically went into a bear market and closed on the absolute low of the day. So that could indicate some more downside for Fiverr coming up on, um, on Monday. You know, I mentioned Beyond Meat. Uh, that was up 7% today, but I think it was down 20 or 30% yesterday. Some brokerage firm, I forget which one, finally put like a hold recommendation. I don't know if they only went to a, into a sell, but it was a guy, an analyst who had been bullish on the company, but you know it had gone in, beyond sanity with the price. So he said, hey, I like the company, but it's just too expensive. And you know the high was 186, and we closed today at 151. But now, obviously, some risk there in uh, Beyond Meat. But I don't know if the shorts are out of the woods yet on this one. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see this particular stock making another new high. I don't know that uh, it's going to be that easy uh, for the shorts there. But I do think some of these other ones that came out today, like Fiverr or Chewy, uh, I think uh, these things look like uh, they could get chewed up and spit out uh, based on, uh, you know, the, the fundamentals for these kind, at least Beyond Meat has a real sexy story, right? There's an old saying in the brokerage industry, you know, you sell the sizzle, not the steak. And in this case, you know, the steak isn't, you know, isn't even made of meat. Uh, it's made of vegetables, uh, but they still have a lot of sizzle in the, um, in the Beyond Meat story. So I don't know that we've seen the highs, uh, but, you know, ultimately the stock's going to collapse. As I said before, I just don't know when it's going to happen, but the price, the valuation is way out of whack with anything that this company could possibly be worth. But again, this is a sign of the times, right? I mean, how much clearer does it get, right? I mean, they say you don't ring a bell at the highs, but when you come up with a basically a pets.com too, right? I mean, come on. I mean, how much clearer does the bell have to be that we have another bubble here and we have a long way to go down? In fact, it was uh, President Donald Trump himself who was lamenting the fact that we don't have a bigger bubble. I mean, I was listening to an interview with Donald Trump, and he was talking about, you know, what he normally talks about, but in particular, he talked about the Fed and what a bad job Powell was doing. He basically said, the guy's doing a lousy job. I disagree with everything that he's doing. Now, he owned up to the fact that, yeah, he appointed him, so he admitted that that was a mistake, right, according to Trump, because if the guy's done everything wrong, if you disagree with everything that he's done, then clearly you made a mistake by nominating him, right? So basically Trump is saying, yeah, you know, I screwed up. I nominated the wrong guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. Everything he's doing is wrong, right? So he's basically trashing uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And one of the things that he said was that had the Fed not made the mistake of raising rates, right, had not made the mistake of doing quantitative tightening. So he's now saying that these things were a mistake, even though as a candidate, he, was in, he thought that it was long overdue, right? But now he's saying they shouldn't have done it. He actually said that they should have done the opposite, that instead of tightening, they should have been easing. 
that instead of doing quantitative tightening, they should have been doing more quantitative easing. That's basically what Trump said. And again, remember, he criticized the Fed for being too easy under Barack Obama. That was the reason that he didn't want to renominate Janet Yellen. The, his criticism of Yellen was that she was too loose, that she kept interest rates too low, right? That he wanted sound money. He wanted a change. Remember, there were a lot of people talking about, oh, you know, Trump might take us back on the gold standard, right? He's a hard money guy. Now he's lamenting the good old days of cheap money. He's longing for more quantitative easing, for 0% interest rates. And he said if the Fed had only done the right thing, which he used to call the wrong thing, but if they'd only done the right thing, he says that the stock market would be 10,000 points higher right now, right? We'd have a Dow 10,000 points higher than it is if the Fed hadn't screwed up by doing the wrong thing. Now, first of all, Donald Trump did not run promising a higher stock market, right? I mean, he ran talking about the stock market being a bubble. He said, who cares about the rising stock market? It's a bubble. I want to make America great again. Donald Trump was appealing to blue-collar Americans, not because he was promising a higher stock market, but to make America great again by bringing back good jobs, by bringing back manufacturing, by, by draining the swamp and doing all this great stuff. Now he just wants a higher stock market. He just wants more of what we had under Obama. Well, obviously that kind of message is not going to sell, right? That's not going to resonate in 2020 when he's running for a second term. It doesn't matter about the stock market. The voters he need are the voters he promised uh, a better life. Voters who are struggling with debt and low-paying jobs and a rising cost of living. And those struggles haven't gone away. If anything, people are going to be struggling harder uh, in 2020 when they go to the polls than they were when they went to the polls four years earlier in 2016. In fact, we just got the numbers, right, for May, the deficit numbers in government spending. And in the month of May, we set a record. The government spent more money this May than it had ever spent in a month in the history of the country. Think about that. More money in May than in any other month, not just any other May, but any other month in history. And that would include every single month during the Great Recession of 2008-2009. When, when the country was a basket case, we we're in the worst recession since the Great Depression. Government was spending like crazy to try to prime the pump. And in May, we spent more than in any one of those months when the economy is supposedly in great shape. And the amount of money we borrowed in May, set a record for a May. So we borrowed more money in May 2019 than we borrowed in any May in the history of the Republic. You know, so Donald Trump is out there, you know, upset that we didn't get more monetary stimulus from the Fed. But we got record fiscal stimulus from Congress and the White House. I mean, how much stimulus does Donald Trump need? I mean, we're, we're spending more than ever before at the government. We're borrowing more than ever before. And Donald Trump is upset that we're not printing more than ever before, that we're not back at zero, that we're not doing QE. I mean, if we've got this great economy, why do we need more stimulus from government than ever before? We're already getting more fiscal stimulus than ever before. And now Trump wants more monetary stimulus from ever before. Why does this economy which is the greatest in U.S. history, needs more artificial stimulation from government and the Federal Reserve than ever before. And you know, if would anybody have really voted for Trump, or not, or certain people, if his prescription for making America great again was making the government bigger again, taking big government and making it bigger than ever, right? Taking uh, monetary policy and making it easier than ever. If Trump said, vote for me, and I promise more government spending than we've ever had, right? We're, I'm going to set records. I'm going to break records for increases in government spending. I am going to break records for increases in deficits. I just want massive government deficits, massive government spending. And at the same time, I want to run the printing presses. I want more money printing. I want more quantitative easing. I mean, there's no way he would have made it out of the Republican primary if that's what he was saying. 
But all the Republicans are still supporting him. He enjoys massive support within the Republican Party for doing stuff that if he actually promised to do this, he never would have made it out of the primaries. Right? I mean, he would have, he would have been done. The reason that he won is he promised Republicans smaller government, right? Draining the swamp. I'm going to I'm going to get us out of debt. The Fed is doing political things. The Fed is too easy. They're keeping interest rates artificially low. I want to go back to a real economy, right? I want smaller trade deficits. We've got the biggest trade deficits in US history under President Trump. You know, obviously, it's not going to matter because there's not going to be a primary. So Donald Trump is not going to be held accountable for being such a big spender and big borrower uh, in, in another primary. So he's just going to be in the general election where re- most Republicans will have no choice uh, but to bo- vote for Trump because the Democrats are going to promise even more government spending, even more borrowing than Trump. Uh, so basically, it's going to be an election between two Democrats, a Democratic Socialist and just a regular Democrat, because that's what the Republican Party is now. It's basically the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is the Socialist Party. But I don't know why the Republicans are so happy about this. I don't know why the Republicans are you know, so eager to support the fact that their party is now the Democrat Party. And basically, Trump is what we used to call a rhino, right? A Republican in name only. That's basically what Trump is. He's a rhino, yet nobody cares. Republicans couldn't be happier with a rhino president. And nobody else in the Republican Party has the balls to call him out on it because of how popular he is uh, within the party. Well, of course, a lot of this is going to change when we're in recession and uh, Trump is no longer president, right? The Republican Party will probably try to refine its roots, but it's going to be too little too late, you know? And I doubt a lot of the uh, middle of the rotors, right? The, the, the moderates, the centrists, the independents, uh, Reagan Democrats who voted for um, Trump, you know, based on his promises of something different, you know, I mean, four years is not that long. I mean, granted, I mean, people... You know, people don't remember 20 years ago, right? The people who were buying Chewy, you know, don't, you know, two, 20 years ago is ancient history. It's probably a lot of the traders who have jobs today, uh, you know, were still in school uh, in uh, in 2000, you know, during the dot-com bubble. And a lot of them maybe don't remember. Uh, but four years is not that far. And I think voters could typically remember four years back. And, uh, you know, when they realized they were sold a bill of goods, uh, they're not going to be eager to buy it again. But, you know, I actually think Trump is wrong on this point. I mean, Trump obviously believes that had the Fed not raised rates and not only not done quantitative tightening, but went back to quantitative easing, had the Fed done that after he was elected, Trump thinks that the stock market would be much higher, 10,000 points higher, right, is what he said. And I'm sure most people would agree. Most people would think, well, yeah, if the Fed did more QE, sure, the market would be higher. But I don't think it would have worked this time. I think we got a big rally in the market after Trump was elected because of optimism on both the U.S. economy and the Fed raising rates because nobody thought the rate hikes were a problem. They didn't get it. They thought the Fed was going to be able to normalize interest rates, that we had gotten out of the ditch, whereas the rest of the world was still mired in the trap. They couldn't get off the zero bound. Uh, America had succeeded where Europe and Japan had failed. And the proof of that was the Fed's ability to normalize interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. And so the rate hikes that we had in the past were a big part of that charade. The Fed had to show the markets that it could raise rates by actually raising them, which is what they did. And so this encouraged people to invest in the U.S. It strengthened the dollar. It kept long-term interest rates low by keeping the dollar strong. And that, the combination of a strong dollar and low interest rates, you know, gave a boost to the economy. And money was flowing into U.S. assets based on the perception, right, that the rates were going to keep rising, the economy was going to keep growing. Now, had the Fed done what Donald Trump now wishes they would have done, just called off all the rate hikes and gone back to quantitative easing, That would have sent the opposite signal to the markets. The markets would not have believed that the economy was good. After all, if the economy was good, why would the Fed be calling off rate normalization? Why would the Fed be going back to quantitative easing? 
the only explanation for the Fed completely abandoning everything it said it was going to do and instead of tightening, easing, and instead of shrinking its balance sheet, blowing it up even bigger, the only reason that they would have done that would have been because they were worried about the economy and they thought they needed to rescue it with more emergency stimulus. This would have tanked the dollar. The dollar would have sold off sharply because everybody had been expecting rate hikes. That was already built into the dollar. And if they ended up getting the opposite of what they expected, the dollar would have tanked. Uh, that would have sent commodity prices up. That would have actually sent long-term interest rates up as it would have had a bigger impact on inflation. In fact, the economy probably would have moved into stagflation that much sooner had the Fed done what Donald Trump wishes they would have done because he just assumed that since quantitative easing worked before to goose the market, it would work again. But the problem is it's, that would have been the overdose on stimulus. And so instead of the economy getting high on more stimulus, it would have OD'd and gone into a coma, right? Got a comatose and the economy would have imploded because money would have been pouring out of U.S. stocks into foreign stocks, into the emerging markets, into gold, right? And so we would have had um, not all the enthusiasm for the U.S. market. The U.S. dollar wouldn't have been the safe haven People would have been fleeing the dollar. People would have been getting out of the dollar because of uh, QE and, uh, and cheap money. And that's, again, that's exactly what I think is going to happen when the Fed ultimately does exactly what Donald Trump wishes they had done before. They're going to do it, right? Because when the economy goes back into recession, they're going to go back to QE. They're going to go back to 0% interest rates. But again, it is not going to work because it is going to expose the lie that the U.S. economy was sound and that the Fed's policy worked because the basis of believing the policy worked rested in the Fed's ability to unwind it, right? That was the key. Without the ability to uh, normalize rates and shrink the balance sheet, the policy was a failure. Because the, the definition of success was the ability to end it, right? If you're saying, I'm going to rehabilitate somebody, right? Somebody, uh, you know, they, they, they can't walk, and so I'm going to give them a crutch just long enough till they learn to walk on their own, and then I can take the crutch away when they no longer need it, right? That would be a successful rehab. But if you take the crutch away and they collapse, and they, they constantly need the crutch, in fact, not only do they constantly need that crutch, but they always need a bigger crutch, right, a stronger crutch, then you haven't cured the patient at all. The patient is in worse shape. And that is what the markets are going to discover when the Fed returns to the massive fiscal stimulus that Donald Trump wants. Remember, there's an old saying, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Now, speaking about the Democrats promising socialism, Bernie Sanders is out stumping around and I happened to catch an interview with Bernie Sanders. And, you know, one of the ways that he's trying to sell his socialist snake oil is by trying to claim that more socialism means more freedom, right? Now, this is what George Orwell called doublespeak, right? Uh, you know, white is black, black is white. And in this case, slavery is freedom. Because when you're talking about socialism, you really talk about slavery. You're talking about the opposite of freedom. Now, here is Sanders' convoluted logic as to why more government equals more freedom. But first of all, it when you're talking about freedom, we're actually talking about freedom from government. That's what freedom means, right? It means where you get to do what you want and the government doesn't tell you what you have to do, right? The more rules you have, the more laws that you're forced to abide by, the less freedom you have, right? So as you increase the size of government, you decrease the amount of freedom. Right? As you shrink government, then you have more freedom. And so Sanders is promising bigger government, more rules, more regulation. By definition, he's promising a society that's less, less free. But he's trying to spin this as if socialism equals freedom. And the way he, uh, he gets to this, or his logic is as follows. If people can have free health care, right? if people have health care as a right, and they don't have to worry about getting sick, well, they have more freedom, right? If you get free college, if you don't have to pay for college, well, you have more freedom to decide, uh, you know, where you want to go or you don't have to worry about what things cost, right? If you've got a guaranteed job, 
well, then you can enjoy your life more, right? You you can do more things without having to worry about, you know, where your next meal is going to come from or how you're going to pay your rent, right? If the government gives you all this free stuff, then you have more freedom, right? Well, free stuff doesn't equal freedom, right? When the government gives you free stuff, they own you. Basically, this is a trade-off. See, when you get your health care from government, the government is telling you the type of health care that you're going to have, right? Whatever the government gives you, there's all sorts of strings attached to it. And if the government is pulling the strings, you are not free, right? Once you, you know, you make this deal with the devil, right? That's what the government is. You're not free. They own your soul, right? You're selling your soul in order for the allure of getting something for nothing. But believe me, you are giving up your freedom, right? When government tells you what to do, right, then you are less free. But of course, in order to pay for all this stuff, the government has to increase taxes. And when you pay more of your money in taxes, right, when money is extracted from you against your will, you have less freedom, right? When the government takes your money by force, that's not freedom. And then they tell you what to do. That's not freedom. Freedom is you decide what you're going to do. And then you do it. You buy stuff with the money that you earned. And of course, also when Sanders is talking about socialism and he's talking about more freedom, he's talking about more freedom for some people, right? And not others, right? Some pigs are more equal than other pigs because of course what Sanders wants to do is redistribute wealth. He wants to take money from some people and give it to others, right? The people who vote for him. So obviously the people who are having money stolen from them, they're not more free. If I'm being forced to pay for somebody else's education and somebody else's health care and somebody else's guaranteed government job, my freedoms have been diminished because this money is being taken from me against my will. And now I have less money to do the things that I want to do. So I have less freedom. And so all of this, everything Sanders is talking about has to do with government control. It has to do with giving up your freedom and your liberties, surrendering all that to government. And government's in charge. Government's becoming more powerful and they tell you what to do. You know, that's what Sanders, so he's trying to dress this up. He's trying to put all this lipstick on a pig and, and wrap all this stuff up, you know, in a bow and present it to the voters as if this is what's going to make them free. This is how you lose your freedom by succumbing to this, by letting these demagogues, these politicians pander, you know, and come in and, and, and promise you one thing and deliver the opposite. Right? He talks about he wants to complete, you know, the, the promise of the New Deal, like, like, uh, Roosevelt didn't go far enough. It was just the beginning, and now we have to complete the journey. Yes, uh, FDR basically ruined the country, I mean, or began the process, although maybe it began in the progressive movement a little earlier, but he really accelerated it. But now what Sanders is saying is, look, FDR you know, basically ruined American capitalism, but he didn't turn it into a complete socialist country. We just mixed in a lot of socialism, into the capitalist system we had, and now we're paying the price. But what he wants to do is complete the process. He wants to finish what Roosevelt started. He wants to wipe out the rest of capitalism and just go full-on socialism. That's really what Bernie Sanders is promising, no matter how he wants to dress it up. And, you know, I think under normal circumstances, the voters would reject it. But 2020, we're not going to have normal circumstances. If we go into this recession, which the odds are we will be in one, even if it doesn't start in 2019, the odds are overwhelming that it will be here in 2020. But regardless of when the recession begins, it will not end before the next election. We will be in a recession when voters go to the polls. And I think that means voters are going to vote for the party on the outside regardless because the party in control is going to be blamed for the recession just like they're blamed for every recession and so the voters are going to vote for change trump is going to be promising more of the same remember his slogan is keep america great again as far as he's concerned he's already succeeded in making america great so if we're in recession during the next election trump is promising more 
the Democrats will be able to say, look, the economy stinks and we're going to make it better. We're going to make it better by adopting socialism and giving you more freedom, right? This is their message. And unfortunately, I think it's going to play at least, you know, in, in the places it needs to play in order for the Democrats to win. You know, one example of what Democrats do when they are in control, uh, you can see in New York State, which just, I think, for the first time is about to pass statewide rent control. So they don't want to screw up housing, affordable housing in the cities. They want to screw it up all over the state. And if you read a lot of the articles that have been written, and there's plenty of them on the internet about this new rent control, they're all pretty much positive, right? It's like, oh, this is great news. You know, it's turning the tables. It's transferring the power from the landlords to the tenants. Look, it's not just about transferring power. It's about confiscation of wealth. This is out-and-out theft. That's what's being done. Basically, wealth is being confiscated from its rightful owners and basically being distributed to the tenants. And the reason that this type of legislation is popular is because the number of tenants outnumbers the number of landlords. I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot more people renting apartments than people who own the buildings. Right? And especially, you know, you got a lot of multifamily units out there, and many of the landlords own multiple uh, multifamily units, right? So you got a lot of people who are tenants and not a lot of people who are landlords. So clearly, if you're counting votes, the votes of the tenants outnumber the votes of the landlords. So the politicians, well, they don't care if they lose the votes of the landlords because they get the votes of the tenants and the numbers are there, right? Again, Willie Sutton. Ask him, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the, the money is. All right, well, tenants are where the votes are. And so you've got these politicians pandering to tenants, promising them something for nothing, which is what they're doing. So if you actually look at some of the, some of the stuff that's in this new rent control, one of the things in there, the big thing, or one of the big things, is that annual rent increases are limited to 2% per year. And this is permanent. See, the last rent control law had a sunset. It was about to expire. That's why they had to come up with a new one. Well, this one never expires, right? It's there forever. And so 2%. Now, 2% is not a lot to increase rent, especially when rent is already low in these rent-stabilized apartments. So capping the annual increases to 2% a year uh, is a big deal, especially as inflation is going to accelerate. I mean, if we have inflation of 8% a year or 10% a year, which is coming, but you can only raise your rent 2% a year, well, that basically means that you're cutting your rents by 8% a year, right? I mean, so this is basically a law that will force landlords to reduce rents every year, which of course is going to be a disaster. I mean, prior to this, under the old law, they could raise rents by 6% a year. And, and, you know, and outside the city and other counties, uh, you could go as high as 15% annual increases. All of this is going statewide. The, the most you can increase rent in a year is 2%, regardless of the inflation rate. But, but it gets worse, right? Number, number two, they are going to make it much harder for landlords to pass on any maintenance costs or you know, improvements to the property, uh, renovations, infrastructure, you know, major capital investments if they you know, fix up the property, if they improve it, they make it nicer, they cannot increase the rents to cover those costs, or it's going to be very difficult to do so. So what does that mean? Well, that just means that they're not going to do it. Landlords would be fools to spend one nickel improving or maintaining their properties. So that means the properties are just going to fall into disrepair. I mean, the paint's going to be chipping off. I mean, you know, things are going to be, they're going to be eyesores, but the landlords have no incentive to improve the properties, which means that maybe the tenants won't get rent increases, but they're going to have to come out of pocket if they want to keep the building or their apartments uh, in good shape because the landlord's going to say, take a hike. I'm not spending any money, right? I mean, I'm losing money on this property as it is. I'm not going to spend any more money in it. They also are going to make it much harder for the landlords to evict tenants, right? And a lot of times, you know, tenants don't pay the rent. Tenants are a problem. And, you know, making it harder to evict them is a big problem. They also want to limit the security deposits that landlords can require. And, you know, obviously, you know, sometimes 
people are high risk tenants and the only way a landlord might be willing to rent to them is if they can get a high enough security deposit. Well, now they're saying, well, you can't get a high security deposit. Uh, and so that, again, means that they're less likely to rent to tenants who uh, potentially could damage the property. They also want to make it much easier for the land, the tenants to sue the landlord, right? It's like, it's not easy enough. They want to make it even easier. So basically what this law is doing is it is punishing anybody who wants to be a landlord. They're going to make it much less likely that people will want to build uh, lower income housing, uh, become landlords, rent out. I mean, basically this is going to destroy uh, what's left of the housing market in New York, uh, especially when it comes to affordable housing. I mean, sure. I mean, there's plenty of constructions right now for fancy, you know, you know, multi-million dollar condos. Yeah, people are willing to build those. But nobody in their right mind is going to want to build affordable housing with this new rent control law in existence. I mean, this is complete uh, garbage. This is socialism. This is theft. Right? This is confiscation of property. And in fact, I think that over time, a lot of the landlords are just going to walk away from their properties. I mean, they're basically going to be losing money on these properties between the cost of maintaining them, especially if they have debt. When interest rates go up, you know, they can't pass on these costs. Uh, the properties you know, need repair. They need maintenance and they're losing money. Uh, they have tenants that aren't paying rent and they can't even evict them. Uh, they have tenants that are suing them for all kinds of crazy uh, reasons that may make it easy. I mean, they're going to say the hell with it. They're just going to wash their hands. But this is like the government is stealing their property. They are depriving them of property without due process of law. That's really what this is. This is nationalization, wealth confiscation. This is what these socialists do. Now, of course, yes, in the short run, there are some winners, right? The tenants, it's a great deal, right? I mean, I get all the benefits. The ten tenants get to steal uh, the basic property rights from the lawful, rightful owners of the property. Now, all this, of course, is nonsense because property belongs to the owner. Nobody has a right to rent a piece of property. In fact, when you rent property, you know, you have a one-year lease. Yes, you have rights on that property based on that lease as a tenant for a year, but you don't own the property. The landlord owns the property. Yet when tenants are allowed to go to government and have government basically robbing, stealing property rights, the benefits of properties from the rightful lawful owners who purchased the properties, who took the risks, and then basically delivering those benefits to the tenants, right? This is redistributing redistribution of wealth. It is wrong. It is immoral. It is illegal. It is unconstitutional, but they do it anyway. But what's going to happen is it's going to backfire because it's going to uh, cause the supply of affordable housing to go down. And ultimately what happens is rents are going to go up because here's what's going to happen. This has already happened. So first of all, when you have a shortage of housing, right? And of course, a lot of landlords that own property won't even rent it. Right? It's not even worth the risk. Why rent it? They may find other uses for it, or maybe they'll have family members uh, staying there, but they're not going to rent it because of all these rules that make it so uneconomical and risky to actually accept the tenant. Uh, they're not going to do it. But there are still going to be uh, places that are occupied and rented out. But what's going to happen is, let's say you're new to the city, or you're younger and you're moving out of your parents, whatever it is, and now you're looking for a place to live is it going to be very hard to find one because the supply is short. So you're probably going to have to pay a broker or somebody a huge finder's fee. You're going to have to pay a lot of money just to even find an apartment, right? And so who benefits from that? It's the people who, the gatekeepers, right? The people who uh, have the listings or, you know, so the landlord's not getting that money, uh, but some other person is being enriched. But the prospective tenant is still having to shell out all this money that he wouldn't have to shell out if there wasn't any rent control because there'd be more apartments and they'd be easier to find. But because there's now a shortage, they're hard to find and you got to pay a big chunk of money up front just to find out where one is. But then what's also going to end up happening is a lot of the people who are lucky enough to be living in these properties, right? Now there's rent control, right? And the cost of living is going up. There's lots of inflation and they have, you know, an apartment that is, you know, way below what the real market would be. And there's all these people who are looking for apartments, but there's none on the market because of the shortage. What happens is 
the actual tenants end up subletting the apartments. Now, it's illegal. You're not supposed to do that. But how's a landlord going to know, right? I mean, you do it on the, on the quiet, right? And so you find somebody to sublease your apartment. And so then they pay you directly. And now you pocket the difference. You pay the controlled rent to the landlord, but you collect a market rent from your subtenant. But the subtenants probably end up paying illegal rents that are higher than what the legal rents would have been absent any rent control. So rents are still going up, except the beneficiary of the higher rent is not the guy that actually owns the property, but the guy that has the lease, right? The guy that got the favor from the government, it's it's that tenant that ends up getting the benefit of the higher rent, and he's not even living there. Maybe he doesn't even live in the city anymore. Maybe he moves out, and now he's collecting rent from some other guy who was forced to sublet from him because he can't find any apartments that he could legally rent. So you get all these unintended consequences that are a result of this rent control, but the only reason nonsense like this passes is because the public wants something for nothing. The public always wants the government to steal from other people and give to them. That's all the Democrats are out. When you take away all the bows, right, and all the promises and all the lipstick, that's what it boils down to. Vote for me and I will steal for you. And unfortunately, the average American is a thief. I mean, that's basically the level of morality that we have in our country now, that most Americans are totally fine with stealing. In fact, I think today most Americans would probably steal, but for the fear of getting caught. I mean, once upon a time, most Americans wouldn't steal because it was the wrong thing to do. It doesn't matter, right? If you, even if you think you can get away with it, right? If you're at a store, you know, and, and, and I'm, you know, obviously it's so easy to steal stuff, uh, but the reason you don't do it is because it's morally wrong. I mean, you don't, you don't want to take something for nothing, but there's a lot of people now. Now, I know I get it. There's probably some people out there that don't mind stealing through the ballot box because they don't regard that as stealing, but they won't do it themselves. But, but, but I think a lot of those people, the only reason they're not stealing themselves is because they're afraid they might get caught. And so it's the fear of punishment that keeps them from stealing, not the fact because they're honest or moral. And that's, and that's why they're willing to vote like this. Because I think any person who is moral and is honest would never fall for this. You know, I mean, back when welfare first started in America, right, it was called relief. And most people were, didn't want it. They were embarrassed to take it. And if they took it, they, wouldn't even, they didn't even let anybody know. And there were people that tried to pay it back. I mean, people felt bad about taking something they didn't earn because they knew that that money was coming from somebody else, that somebody else earned it, and it was being redistributed. And they understood that that was morally wrong, that that was basically theft. But over the years, you know, we've lost that morality. We've lost uh, that, that sense of self and, and the rugged individual and, and, and real freedom and being independent from government. And we're basically a nation of thieves, and that's, that's where we are. I want to finish up the podcast again today by talking about Bitcoin, which is rallying as I am recording this. We're back up to about 8,600 now on the price of Bitcoin. Remember, we did get above 9,000, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, and uh, we sold back. I think the lowest I've seen it is about 7,500 uh, since it got above 9,000. And we have been trading around the 8,000 level, and we uh, got a bid today. In fact, if you look at when the rally in Bitcoin started today, it was exactly at 8.30 in the morning when the uh, better-than-expected retail sale numbers came out and the price of gold sold off from its highs. And as soon as the price of gold started to sell off, the price of Bitcoin started to rise. It had a big spike. And in fact, because gold failed to hold above 1350 I think that's one of the reasons that you're seeing this rally in the price of Bitcoin today. And in fact, if you look at the way Bitcoin's been trading, to me, rather than being an alternative to fiat currencies, I think Bitcoin is trading as an alternative to gold. I think the whole idea now, the whole marketing spin for Bitcoin is that it's an alternative to gold. It's a better store of value than gold. And so to the extent that gold is not rising or gold is seen as being capped uh, with some resistance... Uh, then that creates demand for Bitcoin. But if that's um, the way it's going to be, 
then once the price of gold does break out in earnest and we start to see upward momentum, because once we really break out of this 1350 to 1375 range, clear 1400, I don't see any resistance at all in the price of gold until it gets back up to 1900. So we're going to have a nice uh, rise in the price of gold, a lot of optimism, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of buying, and that could take the air out of the Bitcoin sale. But one thing that should have taken the air out today that didn't uh, is, you know, the, the announcement from Facebook, although this is not brand new, this is something that had been, you know, they had been talking about, but now it's starting next week. But Facebook is launching its own cryptocurrency. I think they're calling it Libra. I'm not really sure how they came up with that name, but I think that's what the name is going to be for this cryptocurrency. And the way the Bitcoin community is spinning this, oh, this is great news, right? Because this validates the concept of cryptocurrencies. This shows that the mainstream is moving in. You know, we got Facebook, one of the biggest companies is going into crypto, going into blockchain. And so this is great, right? This is buy Bitcoin, right? This is how they're spinning it. But the reality is this is terrible news for Bitcoin. Remember, initially, the idea was that Facebook was going to incorporate Bitcoin into its platform. I remember hearing people talk about how uh, one day uh, Facebook is going to use Bitcoin. That's what the rumors were months and months ago, that it was going to be part of their platform, that people were going to be able to somehow integrate uh, Bitcoin with Facebook. But that's not what's happening. This is a rejection of Bitcoin by Facebook. I mean, they're basically saying we want to get into the cryptocurrency market but we don't want to use Bitcoin because Bitcoin's not going to work. So we have to reinvent something that will work because they want to create something that will work in e-commerce. They want to create the money of the Internet and they know that Bitcoin is not it. So this might be an embracing the concept of cryptocurrency. And they're saying, yes, we like blockchain. But what they are saying emphatically is we may like blockchain and we may like cryptocurrencies, but we don't like Bitcoin. We don't think Bitcoin is going to work. So we're going to come up with something that will, something that actually has the utility that Bitcoin lacks. Right? And, you know, a lot of people, when I put these articles up on my Facebook page or on Twitter, you know, I get all the responses. All this proves that Peter Schiff doesn't understand Bitcoin. I understand Bitcoin better than all the people who are accusing me of not understanding. I understand it perfectly. It's because I understand it perfectly that I know it's not going to work. But here is why um, Facebook's coin is a problem for Bitcoin. Now, again, you've got to go back to the original appeal of Bitcoin. And a lot of that is gone, right? But one of the promises that they still have today is that Bitcoin is going to derive a lot of demand from people all around the world, right, who live in countries where there's a lot of inflation and where they have weak currencies, and Bitcoin is supposedly going to be an alternative, right? Especially if they don't have a bank account, they can just have Bitcoin, and now it's borderless, and they can they can preserve their wealth, but they can shop, and they can, they can transact, and they can send their, you know, Bitcoins to friends or family members all around the world, you know, and so it's supposedly, it's going to be the internet of the money, right? There's all this stuff that's supposed to cause this extra demand for, for Bitcoin. But none of that's really happening because the problems with Bitcoin is the volatility in Bitcoin makes it difficult to use it as a medium of exchange. And for smaller purchases, the transaction costs are high. They're slow and they're expensive. Well, now along comes Facebook with its new coin. This new coin is going to have stability relative to the strongest fiat currencies on the planet. Because this cryptocurrency is going to be backed by national fiat currencies. And not all of them, just the strong ones. You know, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the Swiss franc, I mean, the Aussie dollar. I'm not really sure the, the, the composition of the basket. But basically, when you own a uh, Facebook digital uh, currency, you will basically own like an ETF, a, a, a basket of, of foreign currencies that will have the same purchasing power as, as, those, as those currencies. But the idea is that now it's in a coin online. It's in a digital currency. So now you can easily exchange it without having to go through a bank, 
without having to go through a wire or Western Union. It's going to be the money of the internet, right? If you have a Facebook account and you live in the United States and your friend has a Facebook account and he lives in Australia, you can instantly send him some Facebook digital money uh, instantly for free. But merchants will be able to use it. Right? And they, they're partnering with PayPal, they're partnering with Visa, MasterCard. There's heavy money going into this. And my guess is that a lot of companies will ultimately be accepting payment in this digital currency. And it will work. I mean, Shift Gold, a lot of people want to you know, come out and say, oh, Shift Gold accepts Bitcoin. No, Shift Gold does not accept Bitcoin. We make it easy for people who own Bitcoin to sell their Bitcoin to get dollars to buy gold, right? That's part of the marketing. And the whole Bitcoin community wants to pretend that people are actually buying things with Bitcoin when they're not. They're buying things with dollars and they're selling their Bitcoin to get it. But Shift Gold could easily accept the Facebook digital currency and we could accept it as in sale of gold because the price will be very stable. And of course, if the transaction cost in Facebook's digital currency are lower than using bank wires or credit cards, then we'll obviously use it, right? I mean, a lot of companies will use it. I mean, I can see, uh, you know, cell phones, you know, pre-installed or pre-loaded with this. And, you know, I, th this is something that I think could, could catch on. And Facebook obviously has the, the size, the economies of scale to be able to deal with the compliance issues to be able to deal with the AML and to know your customers and to do all the things you need to do in order to lawfully, uh, you know, provide this platform. And, you know, another benefit that you're going to have is, you know, if you have Bitcoin and, you know, you lose your Bitcoin, they're stolen, they're gone, right? If you make a transaction with Bitcoin, you buy something with Bitcoin and then you don't get what you want, you have no recourse. You can't get your Bitcoin back. But you're probably going to have all those protections uh, with Facebook, if you, if you buy something and it's not what you thought, they'll reverse the transaction. You get your money back. I don't think it'll be able to be hacked or stolen, but if it is, they'll probably you know, be able to reimburse you. So I think that for people around the world who are struggling uh, without a bank account, who are living in countries where there's high inflation and they want a more stable uh, store of value that they can use as a medium of exchange, that they can conduct e-commerce, where they can send money around the world uh, inexpensively and quickly. This is going to be their solution. It's a slam dunk. So basically what's going to happen is Facebook is going to dominate and eat into the market that Bitcoiners are counting on to supply the incremental demand to drive the price of Bitcoin higher. Now, I get it that it is centralized. You have to trust Facebook. But I think a lot of people will trust Facebook. And Facebook, of course, isn't the only company that can do this. I mean, obviously, if Facebook makes money on this, then other companies are going to come in and compete for that business. And so you'll have uh, digital currencies issued by other companies. Now, this is not a fiat digital currency because it's backed by something. But of course, what it's backed by is fiat money. So by the associative property, it's still fiat. But at least it's backed by something, even if what it's backed by is backed by nothing. But I do believe that eventually more companies will do it with gold. I mean, there's nothing that prevents Facebook from having backed its currency with gold instead of a basket of foreign currencies. That would have been ideal. That obviously would have cost Facebook a little bit more money. Uh, and that's not what they were looking to do because Facebook is not trying to appeal to the gold bug, right? They're not trying to appeal to people who don't trust fiat currencies in general. They're trying to appeal to people who want a simpler way to uh, transact commerce on the internet and for people who are living in countries where you have a, a, a very weak fiat currency. So people who are not worried about fiat currencies in general. They're not worried about the dollar, but they might be worried about the peso or whatever they are. And so this would be an alternative. That's where the big market is right now. I mean, the number of people who actually don't like governments and fiat currencies, the free market libertarian type people who own Bitcoin, that is a small number of people and they're already in, right? So if we're going to grow that market, which is what people in Bitcoin need in order for the price to go way up, you got to bring in those mainstream people, but those mainstream people are going to be turned off by all the problems that Bitcoin has. And the solution to those problems will be in Facebook's coin or in other coins 
uh, that you know have the same types of properties. So rather than being good news, this is actually bad news. But the fact that so many people in Bitcoin can't recognize that, again, is just how blinded they are in this bubble, right? They can't see any of these problems. Uh, now, they're going to say, well, but, you know, you're still going to have to worry about inflation because you're still, it's backed by a fiat curve. Yes, I know that. I know that. But that's not where the market is right now. And to me, if people are really worried about inflation and they really want to store value, they're going to buy gold. They're not going to buy Bitcoin because basically Bitcoin is surrendering the concept of being the money of the internet, right? It's not a medium of exchange. It's not for the unbanked. It's not for people living where governments are printing a lot of money because uh, Facebook's digital currency is going to satisfy that demand much better. The, the transaction costs will be lower. They'll be quicker. They'll be easier because of the stability. So there's no way that Bitcoin can compete in that market. So therefore, the only thing that Bitcoin has to offer is the fact that, well, yes, it's not the money of the internet, but it's just to store value. We just buy it because we can store value. But if it's not, if it can't be used as a medium of exchange, right? if it's not the money of the internet, if you have all sorts of other digital currencies that work better than Bitcoin, that are stable, that are reliable, that are fast, that are inexpensive, you have all that, then what the hell value does Bitcoin have? It has no value. The only value it has is in the minds of the people that own it. It has a brand. It has a loyal following of people who are convinced it's going to work. They're wrong, but they're passionately convinced it's going to work. But that is not enough to sustain this bubble. And once the market really pops, then all of those passionate uh, you know, Bitcoin owners, many of them are going to sell. Right? They're going to give up that conviction when they're not getting validated with the huge gains that they are hoping to get. Because remember, when people end up buying Facebook's digital currency, they're not expecting to make a profit on it. They're not expecting gains. They actually want to use it. They're buying it because of the convenience of using it, because of the ease of using it, right? That's why they want it. That's not why people are buying Bitcoin. People are buying Bitcoin because they think they're going to get rich. They're buying Bitcoin because they think the price is going to go up. But there's absolutely no reason for the price to go up other than people buying it, despite the fact that you can't do anything with it. And they have other cryptocurrencies that actually are functional and actually fulfill the promises that Bitcoin fails to deliver on. Oh, 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 oh,